All right, folks. Well, if you heard last week's sermon, you'll hopefully remember how Kurt presented a wonderful overview of Ephesians. Of course, he focused on how we've been redeemed by Christ, that we may be adopted into the family of God. And with that adoption, we are sealed as sons and daughters of God for all eternity by the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, that should be exciting to us, guys. I mean, (laughs) think about those things. When you think about that deeply, we who are born sinners and enemies of God deserve God's wrath. Yet, yet, in His mercy, He has done that for us. He has redeemed us. He's adopted us into the family of God and sealed us as part of that family. Glory be to God. That's an amazing thing, folks. Kurt, of course, also highlighted how our focus this year on standing firm, right? Standing firm on the truth of God's word. Standing firm in the assurance of Jesus Christ. And standing firm with one another. That, of course, permeates all throughout Ephesians. This week, we're going to pivot from Paul's introduction and start to get into the heart of his letter. And the first thing he does is to encourage the Ephesian church to stand firm in the assurance of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, the person and work of Jesus is so vital to our faith that in Corinthians, Paul makes an incredibly bold claim. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God, about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 14. Paul's almost daring people to prove that Jesus wasn't resurrected. And indeed, when people try to undermine Christianity, that's usually what they attack. But see, folks, it wasn't just a claim. Paul himself encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He knew it was true. The apostles and many others in Jerusalem encountered the risen Christ after his murder. They knew it was true. Those encounters dramatically transformed their lives. So much so that most of those people would give their lives so others could experience that same transformation. May our lives be so transformed this morning. Now, before we get much deeper into this stand firm business, our theme for the year, I want to address a common way that we Christians go off the rails when we deal with this sort of a theme. And as you guys know, I'm a train guy, 
and a pastor, so I really don't want you all going off the rails here. <laughs> you see, we get derailed by our tendency to default to works-based religiosity. Somehow, subconsciously, a little switch gets flipped inside us. We figure that the harder we work at standing firm or, you know, pick a theme, right? The more victorious or honored or loved we will be. Now, while scripture does call us to participate in that process, of course, I want you to be very aware going into our reading of this passage, how much Paul is focusing on the spirit of God as the enabler. We'll see how Paul gives us the example of praying to tap into that power. This is so that we stay focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ and not on our ability to affect change. And Paul gives us three vital truths to pray about for ourselves and for others as a model. Three vital truths which help counter satanic lies that are meant to derail our commitment to standing firm in Christ. So let's return to Ephesians 1, picking up at verse 15, to explore how the truth of our future resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, and our God-granted position as the much-loved inheritance of Christ helps us to stand firm. Let's read. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father God, help your word sink deep into our hearts this morning, that it would change us, transform us. Not just intellectually, but emotionally, spiritually, that we'd be reminded this morning of the grace that you've given us in Christ and the love that's there. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you noticed, there's another one of Paul's massive sentences at the start of this, and then kind of one little short one. I tend to write really long sentences, so I can kind of relate to this. So uh, anyway, let's get right into it here. 
starting at the beginning. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So as we learned last week, Paul had ministered directly to the churches in and around Ephesus. Imagine his joy to hear from others that these churches have grown. And yet in their growing, they are known for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. Now think about that for a moment. The church in Ephesus is known for their faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. That means that the gospel doctrine infused into the church by the Holy Spirit through Paul has grown into a gospel culture such that the good reputation of the Ephesian church is known outside its walls. Folks, that's the kind of thing that spreads the gospel. It was important then as it is now. Why? Because the Gentiles who were told about Jesus had no frame of reference to God, as did the Jews. They would have been just as skeptical in their own way as the non-believers that we encounter today. And the Ephesian Christians, like us, weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So they couldn't give direct testimony of those events. But Christ calls us and enables us to live the way of God-honoring, self-sacrificial love that Jesus did. That's the only way that is true to who we were created to be. And when we live out that life in both word and deed, it glorifies God. And it helps to prove out the power of God to transform lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This the Holy Spirit uses to grow the church. No wonder Paul follows that initial thought with this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, if you were to ask me or Bill or Jason or Kurt, what gives us the most joy as pastors? I suspect it would be seeing each of your hearts becoming ever more changed to reflect Christ. That heart change is shown by differences in choices made, differences in ways of thinking, different responses to situations, and a different manner of engaging with others. Differences that demonstrate faith and love as defined by Scripture. Differences that reflect a gospel-centered life of God-honoring self-sacrificial love. It's tremendously encouraging for us and helps carry us as pastors through difficult seasons. And believe me, if you've ever had to preach, just getting ready for a sermon is a difficult season. (laughs) Consider how many of Paul's letters were sent to correct problems that arose in the early churches and consider his own difficulties. I mean, this is a guy who was shipwrecked, thrown in jail and beaten, bitten by snakes, all kinds of tough stuff. And with that in mind, you can get a start to get a sense of just how encouraging this sort of good report about the Ephesian church would have been to Paul. 
And notice that it's mutually uplifting because it causes Paul to lift them up in prayer all the more and to praise God. And Paul indicates that he is praying that God would grow them in three vital truths. Let's continue in the verse. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, before we get into those three truths, let's talk a moment about the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, in the church, we use the term regeneration to describe the work of the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts to our need for Christ. Regeneration leads to salvation. That's the moment when we participate in the application of Jesus' payment to cover our sins, granting us citizenship in the kingdom of God. We then talk about sanctification to describe the ongoing process of spiritual growth. And we often think about that growth, that sanctification, only in terms of the removal of sin. However, it's really about removing that sin and filling our spirits with Christ-likeness. Otherwise, we'd just be empty vessels. And as that happens, as we get filled with the Spirit, we begin to see the world in new ways. See, before we had no clue about God's holiness, about the depth of his love, about the richness of his mercy, or the rigor of his justice. But after we encounter Christ, our eyes start to open, start to open to all that God is. And Paul is praying that the Ephesian believers would be blessed with a Holy Spirit invigorated growth in their understanding of God. See, it isn't that they don't have some of that already, but we serve an infinite God. So there is obviously much to learn about him. And yet we can grow indifferent to how awesome he is. So this is a prayer that they wouldn't become indifferent, but would continue to be excited about and yearn to learn more about God. Not only that, but that the growth would sink deep into their hearts. You see, scripture equates the heart to the essence and the totality of a person. So Paul is talking about growing in the knowledge of God in an utterly transformative way. It's a way that impacts body and soul and spirit and mind and emotions. Now let's get back to those three truths. Keeping in mind that those three truths apply as much to us as they did to the Ephesians. Paul's prayer is that you may know in that complete sense of the word know, that you may know those three truths. In other words, he considers those three truths as essential concepts to be firmly planted in the heart of believers. Almost as if those three things were vital to helping a believer stand firm. And those three truths are, what is the hope to which he has called you? 
That's the first one. Second one, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And the third one, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So what is the hope to which he has called you? Well, I'm glad you asked. That hope is the resurrection of the saints, folks. That we who believe in Jesus will get to enjoy his loving presence for eternity and glorify God as we were meant to do and made to do. This is not a blind hope. Jesus promised that he was only the first of many who would be resurrected. And there were plenty of witnesses to the truth of his resurrection. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints is just that. You and me. His people, the church. We are his riches. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? If I had slides up, we'd have Jason's little, you know, Calvin and Hobbes thing up there with, you know, mine's going by atomic on us. See, if Jesus looks upon us as his glorious inheritance, maybe we should look upon each other with a similar appreciation, spurring each other on to love and good works, as it says in Hebrews, that he might be glorified, folks. And that third one, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, Folks, that's the forgiveness of sins made possible by Christ's sacrifice. Our infinite debt as sinners to an infinitely holy God paid on our behalf by the only one who could pay it. Friends, do you know these truths? Do you see how they point to Christ? And I don't mean no in the intellectual sense. I mean, no, in that utterly transformative way that we just talked about that impacts body and soul and spirit and mind and emotions. Do you really know deep down and in every fiber of your being that Jesus sacrificed himself for you? And that he did so, so that you could enjoy his loving presence and fulfill your created purpose of glorifying God for eternity. He did that because he loves you and counts you as part of his glorious inheritance. Friends, the deeper those truths sit in your heart, the easier it will be to stand firm when trials come. And believe me, they will come. Jesus himself said they would come. Now, I'll be honest with you this morning. There are times when I lose sight of those truths. And when I do, the Spirit has to again enlighten the eyes of my heart to those truths. And that enlightening most often happens through God's Word or through the gentle and humble love of His saints, coming alongside and sharing a word of encouragement that points me back to Christ. That sounds kind of familiar, maybe like our theme for the year. Now, it's one thing to lose sight of those truths. It's another not to know them in the first place. Towards the end of the message, we're going to learn how those truths can be applied to our lives today. And that there's an assurance that comes with those truths. 
But that assurance is only available to those who repent and believe in Jesus. If you're hearing this message and you don't believe in Jesus, I pray that your heart will be awakened to its need for him as we continue studying God's word. Paul continues, According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the same power that resurrected Jesus, okay, brought him back from the dead, folks, in historic fact, is the same power that Paul is praying will enlighten the hearts of the Ephesians. Anything that can raise Jesus from the dead can easily turn my heart of stone into a heart of flesh that loves God and loves people. And that same power from God the Father honors Christ and his sacrifice by accepting it and giving him authority in heaven on par with God. This speaks to the the part of the passage, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. What a contrast. See, at Christmas, we were reminded that Christ humbled himself, being born as a human in a stable. And then scripture documents how he lived a loving, self-sacrificial life, serving others, God serving others by teaching and healing them. He washed his disciples' feet. And then he died the death of a cursed criminal to pay for their sins, to pay for our sins. As Paul put it in Philippians, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, folks, while man values power and strength and cunning, God, through Christ, demonstrated authority through meekness and love and sacrifice and truth, and humble dependence upon God and God's strength. And because Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life and was perfectly obedient to God, God honored him. The one who willingly subjected himself to the power of men to the point of death is now exalted by God himself and rules over everything. Now, when Paul states that Jesus is in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, he's not saying Jesus in power because he has the higher ground, okay, up there in heaven. No, it's to point out that Jesus is fully in charge. He's not just barely in charge like many earthly rulers. You see, earthly rulers are ultimately in their position by God's sovereign will, according to Romans 13. 
And those same earthly rulers, the power that they have could evaporate in an instant. Maybe due to the next vote or an illness or a military coup, or if they're in business, a round of layoffs or bad press. Any of these things could take out somebody in earthly power, should God so decree. Now, I particularly love the part where Jesus here is named as above every name that is named. You may remember this exchange between Jesus and a demon between our study of Mark, Mark chapter 5. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, that's Jesus was saying to this demon-possessed man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. See, the demon makes a futile attempt to get the upper hand on Jesus by naming him. And at the time, this naming business was believed to be a way of gaining power over someone. Come to think of it, we kind of still do that same thing. I can hear my mom calling my full name. Wolfie Allen Fingler, what did you do? So you guys have probably had that same thing, right? But see, Jesus neatly turns the tables here. And in so doing, it's another demonstration that he is indeed the son of the most high God, whose power is greater than any demon or human ruler or even a Marvel comic superhero. Sorry, Captain America. And that power is there not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, this quick little phrase is super important when we consider standing firm in the assurance of Jesus Christ. See, earthly rulers will ultimately be supplanted. If not by those means I mentioned, like elections or illness or any of these other things, they will certainly be supplanted by death. Christ, however is the first of many to be resurrected to eternal life. And he shall reign forever and ever. If that doesn't inspire assurance, I'm not sure what will. But see, in the currently heavenly rule of Christ lies the challenge. Since we don't physically see him, it's easy for, to forget that he's truly in charge. This is unlike earthly rulers who use worldly means to make their power and influence known. You'll often hear some version of this quote from John Calvin. The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. Now, if you look at that quote in its original context, Calvin is trying to illustrate our tendency to make physical idols. And these physical idols are an attempt to make real the version of God that we've created in our own hearts. It's a version of God we think we can control and one that we can use to justify our pet sins. It's a way for us to try to make our power and influence known. 
And in our day, the tendency is usually for that physical idolatry to be cast on a person or even a movement. And in that, we seek to gain power and influence by association. You think of how many grassroots movements or charismatic business leaders, celebrities, religious leaders, or politicians are raised up to savior-like status. Friends, guard your hearts against this. There is only one savior, Jesus Christ, and he has already established his kingdom. Any other human leader or movement will fail. May God strongly correct us if we as a church have demeaned the sacrifice of Jesus with this kind of idolatry. We must never use these sorts of worldly means to achieve spiritual ends. And by worldly means, I'm talking about positions of authority or force or coercion or shaming or peer pressure, snarkiness, manipulation, tribalism, and all these things that the world likes to use to control. Contrast that with the spiritual means of Christ, who is gentle and lowly, who calls us to share the truth in love, who calls us to live everyone, including our enemies, and demonstrate love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control who, though he was God the Son, he himself prayed and gave thanks to God the Father. That's what Paul is demonstrating in this letter, the importance of prayer and praise, and a focus on Christ and Christ's spiritual means, ways which are foolish to the world, but glorify God in showing humble dependence on him. We can see the further contrast of such idolatry with Paul's closing words of this passage. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this is a case in scripture where all clearly means all. And of all that Christ rules over, his body, the church, that's us folks, that which he is most closely connected to, like your head is pretty well connected to your body, that's what gets top priority. I think the illustration of the church as the body of Christ here is very helpful. You've heard a few people talk about that this morning already. You see, our bodies putting health issues aside, are a marvel of interdependence. Each system and organ and cell depends on one another. And all is directed by the head. Paul talks about this concept even more in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, 
but of many. If the foot, the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that'd be kind of funny for one thing, but where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. And listen to this especially, folks. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. We're talking about unity last week, folks. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. How is that as a model for how the church should function, folks? Isn't that beautiful? If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. All, no one is left out. And God gives to the church the fullness of Christ as our head. He's Savior, Redeemer, God with us, Deliverer. He's the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the Light of the World, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Chief Cornerstone, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. He is all those things and more for us every moment of every day. And folks, it's vital that he is all those things to us every moment of every day. Because at any moment, on any day, we will face temptations to not stand firm in Christ. We'll be tempted to sin. We'll be subjected to trials from both within and without the church. Trials that will make us question or even deny his love and his power and his truth. We'll be tempted to use worldly means to achieve an outcome that we think is needed, and we will fail. We will give in to temptation. We will hurt ourselves and others. And when that happens, we need to stand firm in Christ all the more, knowing that we are forgiven through him. We are guaranteed eternal life with him, and we are deeply deeply loved by him as his rich inheritance. Paul has made a particular point of praying that the Ephesians would have these three vital truths embedded deeply in their hearts. It's an example we should follow. 
Praying these truths both for ourselves and our fellow believers. Now let's see how those three truths can help us stand firm in Christ in light of three of the many ways that Satan loves to attack us. The first tactic of attack relates to forgiveness. Now, for those who don't know Christ, even many of them recognize that they have sinned. But they become convinced that there's no forgiveness for whatever it is they've done. Now, if that's you this morning, let me share a wonderful passage of Scripture to reassure you that Jesus is ready to forgive you right now, no matter what or how bad you've been. This is taken from Luke chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, him being Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do not fear God. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, this criminal recognized his guilt. He was nailed to a cross, receiving man's version of justice for his crimes. There was literally nothing he could do to fix things except confess his sin and ask Jesus to remember him. In essence, he did what Jesus asks of all of us, repent and believe. And in reassuring the man that he would be with Jesus in paradise, Jesus forgave him right then and there. Now in Roman times, history teaches that crucifixion was primarily used for crimes committed by slaves or pirates or other enemies of the state whose actions were liable to lead to widespread unrest. In other words, these criminals were probably pretty bad dudes. Now, see, that would have been known generally to the people back in that day who read Luke's gospel when it was written. But it's interesting to note that what the crime was didn't matter enough to be recorded by Luke. What was recorded was the fact that Jesus granted the criminal forgiveness. That criminal literally couldn't stand firm on anything physical with his feet nailed to a cross. But he could stand firm in Christ, knowing that he would face physical death with his sins forgiven and would not have to face eternal death. And you know, all of us, Christians or not, struggle from time to time with the burden of the sin we carry. And when we sin, Satan often likes to whisper to us that we aren't worthy of forgiveness. Or that we'll be somehow ostracized from the body of Christ if we confess that sin and seek repentance and accountability. Or any number of similar lies designed to guilt us 
into distancing ourselves from Jesus. In other words, lies that are meant to keep us from standing firm in Christ. That satanic lie is quickly shut down in the light of the truth that Paul shared. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Did you get that? Immeasurable power is applied to us to forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, or future. All guaranteed to be covered by our resurrected Christ. Folks, you can pray that verse as part of your counterattack to Satan's lies when he tries to play his head games with you. And in the end, it doesn't matter if we're ostracized by people. If we're generally repentant, then we're in right standing before God. If that's your struggle today, consider these words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A second method of satanic attack is that we're caused to feel that our lives don't matter. We compare ourselves to others and we don't like how we measure up. If that's something that you struggle with, know that you, you count as the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You may not see it. You may not understand your value to the kingdom, but guess what? God doesn't make mistakes and God values you. You, Christian, you believer, are part of the body of Christ, a citizen of the kingdom of God because he loves you and because he chose you. Do you get that? God loves and values you to the point that you're part of his glorious inheritance. And when those thoughts come upon you that cause you to doubt your worth in Christ, Pray this truth that you indeed count as the riches of his glorious inheritance. Satan has many ways of attacking, but a third way that we're going to address today is that many of us are called or caused to feel hopelessness. Whether that's through illness or financial struggles, depression, a tenacious sin we can't seem to kick, or some other trial, we all get weary and lose perspective. Friends, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, the Ephesians is one that we can pray for ourselves and each other, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. As I mentioned earlier, that hope is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, Maybe that seems a little bit kind of ethereal or abstract. Let me see if I can bring this to ground. Think of some of the things you do in this earthly life that bring you great joy. Perhaps it's making music or baking delicious things or painting or reading books or laughing with your family while you're playing a game. When you do that special thing, 
it resonates a special joy within you because that's how God created you. Now consider this. Even more than how you were created to experience that joy in that unique area in your heart, even more than that, you were created to praise and glorify God. So as much as we look forward to those brief moments of unique joy now, our heavenly existence is going to be that much better. Why? Because we'll finally be able to fully engage with what our hearts were really created to do. And it's that goal which Paul wants us to keep deep in our hearts as we face trials in this life. When I think of the hardest things that I've had to go through in my life, happy to talk to you guys about those offline if you ever want to know. And some of those things dragged on for years. But there was always some glimmer of hope, an end to the trial out on the horizon to look forward to. And keep in mind, Jesus himself experienced this, folks, from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, right? Think of all that that means. Think of all that he endured, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, I don't mean to imply that we just simply pray these verses and snap, everything is better. I think you guys know life doesn't work that way. You know, the trials that we face come with real pain. And those trials can last a long time. That pain can last a long time. But what Paul is teaching us is that because of who Jesus is, because of what he endured on our behalf, and because of his present reign, we can absolutely be assured that we are loved deeply by Christ as his treasured inheritance. We can absolutely be assured that we are forgiven of all of our sins. We can absolutely be assured of eternal life with Christ. And in that eternity with Christ, we'll finally be able to fully fulfill our created purpose to praise and glorify God. Period. Done and done. The deeper those truths become embedded in our hearts, the more we'll be able to stand firm in Jesus, no matter what lies are whispered in our ears and what trials we endure. So friends, let's follow Paul's example. Let's pray these verses to remind ourselves of Christ. Pray these verses for others who are struggling. Let's stand firm with each other and with Paul and with the communion of all the saints in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as this assurance grows in your heart, let it shine forth before men. Let it shine forth through a gospel-centered life of God-honoring, self-sacrificial love. And in case you still haven't caught on yet how deeply Paul was assured of this and wanted others to be as well, please turn with me to Romans 8. Eight, starting in verse 38. And please stand. We're going to read this together this morning, folks. 
the worship team could make their way up. Romans 8, 38, we're going to do 38 and 39. Let's pray this for yourselves as we read it this morning, folks. For I am assured, please read with me. For I am assured that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's praise God together.